we have to jump in kind of in the middle. Um, we didn't end at a very convenient spot last time, so this will be a little bit awkward, but uh, I trust God will still bless us with his word. Um, let's see. Uh, let me just gather where we were. If you remember, the main heading that we were on is we were examining Paul's calling. And this was his calling to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was also his calling to the office of apostle. I had just spoken of Paul's predestination as the first part of that verse that speaks of his calling. And we had just drawn an application about um, the miraculous nature of Paul's uh, calling to the Lord Jesus Christ and what a great demonstration of the power of the blood it is to um, save even the very, very worst of sinners. And then the application, if you remember, was that there is hope, even for the worst of people that you might know. And so moving on from that, I headed this little section with the content of his calling. What was he called to? the substance of the call that was divinely communicated to Paul. In the first place, we do not read here that the gospel was revealed to him. We read here that the Son of God, even Jesus Christ himself, was revealed to him. Jesus is so central to the gospel message that his name is used here interchangeably with the gospel itself. Without Christ, there is no gospel. Christ is so central to what the gospel is that to reveal Christ is to reveal the gospel. Now, gospel means good news. How true it is then to say that without Christ, there is no good news. Without Christ, there is only hopeless despair, darkness, and the destruction of the human race by the wrath of God. Any gospel lacking Christ is no gospel at all. And so when Paul says that the gospel was revealed to him, he can accurately simply say that God the Father revealed his Son to him. In the second place, regarding the content of Paul's calling, Paul is given something in addition to what every Christian receives in being called out of sin. He was given, by divine revelation, specific instructions on what he was supposed to do in service to God while he remained in this world. He was told to preach to the Uh, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He was not appointed apostle by other apostles. Like the original apostles, he was appointed directly by Christ, but unlike them, he is the only apostle that was appointed by the risen and glorified Christ. Paul is answering back at his opponents here who were claiming that Paul was somehow an illegitimate or lesser apostle. You can't have better credentials for that office than being divinely and miraculously called by the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ himself. And since Paul's calling was divine, this lends credence to his main thesis that the gospel was of divine origin. And finally, in the third place regarding Paul's calling, we come to the root cause of his calling. There's no trick question here, and I don't expect to surprise anyone with some clever conclusion. Why was Paul called out of his sin and into union with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
More than that, why was he called to be arguably the most influential of all the apostles? It's right there in the text. We've already glossed over it in verse 15. In Galatians 1.15, it says, But when he who had set me apart from before I was born, and who called me by his grace. Grace is the answer here. God did not see something worthy of saving in Paul. He did not see some rare kind of zeal that he wanted to turn around into an aid for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. He didn't see stuff there that was more workable than, than, than what he had in others. God could have raised up a stone to accomplish what Paul accomplished if he wanted to. He did not see a singular talent in Paul that compelled him to call him to the apostleship. It is according to the mysterious purposes of God's will that God in eternity past set his love upon Paul from before the foundation of the world. This is why we approach God through faith. We come to Christ with open, empty hands, with nothing to plead for our cause, except an appeal to his grace and mercy. Our previous uh, pastor, Pastor Kevin, used to have a favorite thing he'd say. He would say, the answer is always grace. And as the men would get together, I remember some years ago for our men's meeting, he would ask us questions, and sometimes nobody knew the answer. And somebody would just blurt out grace, and half the time you were right. Grace is the answer. That's why Paul Paul was called to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the apostleship. So, so much for Paul's calling. I'll move on to his isolation. So look at Galatians 1.16, and to pick up in a sensible place, I'll back up to verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. In these verses, Paul is highlighting his isolation from the church at large and especially from the apostles. Now, remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to show that his gospel was not of human origin, but of divine origin. The way that he shows in this section that it is not of human origin is by explaining how he wasn't around the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, where he could have received gospel instruction. Later in his argument, he shows that he shared his gospel with the apostles in Jerusalem at length, and this is what we'll get to In chapter 2, the next time I have the opportunity to be up here, later he shows that he shared that gospel with the leaders in Jerusalem at length, and he received no additions, no corrections from them, but was rather accepted by them. So let me illustrate 
what Paul is trying to do here by telling us of his initial isolation. I'm going to borrow an illustration I used in the first sermon on the book. If you remember, I used the illustration, the example rather, of Newton and Leibniz. Isaac Newton, many of you know that name, developed the mathematics of calculus, which he needed to explain the phenomena he was observing in the world of physics. He was doing his his experiments, and he saw things happening, and he was trying to describe it with math. And he said, there's nothing out here that I can use. I just have to invent something. Leibniz, his German counterpart, independently developed the same kind of math. But Newton today has all the credit. Now, if you were the other guy, if you were Leibniz, and you were accused of plagiarism, they say, you stole that. I've already seen that math from somebody else. You stole it from Newton. What would you say if you were Leibniz? You might say, hey, I've never met the guy. I've never read his books. I've never read a paper. I've never sat in a lecture. I've never met his students. I have been isolated. How could I have come up with this from him if I've never seen the stuff he came up with? No, no, the phenomena that we're observing is the same in England, where Newton was, and the same in Germany, where I am. And so we came up with the same math to describe the same thing. Paul follows an argument similar to that. He has stated that his gospel is of divine origin. And he shows here that it was not of human origin because he was isolated from those teachers of the gospel in the Jerusalem church. Then when he did share his gospel with them, which was independently given to him after it was given to the um, older or more established apostles, they found it to be one in the same. Now, if they were different, if they were different gospels, Paul's argument falls apart. Things developed independently of one another are usually different. But since the gospels proved to be the same, This lends legitimacy to Paul's argument that the source of both was the same, God himself. Just as the older apostles had received their gospel direction from Christ, so had Paul. It is akin to the universal laws of physics that both Newton and Leibniz observed in England and Germany that gave rise to the same independently developed mathematics. And by akin there, I mean it's it's really the same. The gospel is a universal truth. And so where truth is told as it relates to the salvation of man, the gospel will be told. You understand? Just in the same way that physics works the same way here and in England and Germany and all these other places. Because there is a universal real truth called the gospel. So we'll examine Paul's isolation under these headings. His initial isolation... I'll briefly mention something about his time in Arabia. And then his, I titled it Stint, his short time in Jerusalem. So first, his initial isolation. After Paul's miraculous and very unusual calling to Christ and the apostleship on his road to Damascus, he says something here that would alarm, um, that that should alarm us if he were any other aspiring minister today. He says... I did not consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. What would you say to somebody who said, hey, I want to be a pastor, I want to be a minister, but 
I don't want to go to seminary. I don't want to work with the church. Um, I just want to. I just want to do it. I don't want to consult with anybody. I'm just going to do it. Red flags, right? But Paul says that I didn't consult with anybody. So is Paul a rogue preacher? And should we still follow that pattern today? It would have made a lot of sense for Paul to go to Jerusalem for other reasons. The church was rapidly growing there, and there was just a great persecution that he caused, by the way, in large part, that had broken out against it after the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons. Moreover, there's every indication in Acts that Paul himself was deeply involved in that persecution, some kind of leader of it. Those believers in Jerusalem that were left after the scattering probably needed encouragement. They could have used that encouraging story of Paul, the persecutor who had been miraculously and dramatically saved by God and was now a great herald of the Savior he once despised. But he doesn't go. Why? Well, we do know that Paul was under the direction of the Holy Spirit when he continued on to Damascus, and, and not under the direction in the sense that we are when we spend time in the word and we try to be uh, uh, apply biblical wisdom to circumstances. I mean, under direct supervision and direction of the Holy Spirit told him go to Damascus um, because he was to go there to meet Ananias. He needed to be cured of his blindness. His visit to Arabia is not recorded in the book of Acts, but some commentators believe that Paul was under a compulsion to return to Damascus after his visit to Arabia due to some kind of grammatical construction there. We also know that when he finally did go to Jerusalem for a more extended period of time, he did so because a revelation came to him. It's reasonable to consider that his delayed visit to Jerusalem was perhaps under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he go? Well, we can only speculate, and I don't want to do that. But there is an obvious application here. Um, Paul is unique. His pattern of behavior here ought not to be replicated by aspiring ministers of the gospel or missionaries. They are not apostles, receiving direct, specific instructions from the Lord himself. Today, the pattern ought to be to work under the direction of a local church. Even Paul himself was sent off by the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit, for example, in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. He was also sent under, it says, the commendation of the church in Jerusalem after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And you can see this in Acts 15.39. There's that sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Should we take him or should we not? Paul said no. He abandoned us in Pamphylia. Um, Barnabas said yes. And so there was a sharp disagreement and they separated from one another. And this is what it says in verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated, that is Paul and Barnabas, from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him. And he sails away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And then it says, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so the point here is that even though Paul was special, even in his being special, he worked under the direction of the church. It is biblical to work in ministry only under the direction of a local church. 
there was, if you guys remember, there was a traveling missionary who came to us every once in a while, and at one point he stayed uh, in the basement of our old building. He would travel from city to city and do street preaching. Um, and the first time he came, it, it was just him alone, and he went city to city, did his street preaching, but he was not under um, the authority of a church anywhere. Um, and our pastor at the time encouraged him to do that, to get under the authority of a church, and he, and he heeded. He listened and, and partnered with a local church, I think it was in California. Um, we haven't seen him in a while, since, at least since COVID. I don't know what's going on with him. Um, but he was out there all on his own and um, heard what our pastor had to say and ended up um, finding a church that he could become a member of and be under the direction of. That is the proper way to do it. Some parachurch ministries today act independently from any church, and we ought to be leery of them. I personally don't necessarily have an issue with parachurch organizations of themselves, whose mission it is to aid the church in its mission, but it is the church's mission to evangelize the world and to feed the flock of Christ. These were the marching orders given by the Lord himself, in the Great Commission. And so the missionaries that we support are all under the authority of a local church somewhere. Men aspiring to the ministry ought to work under the direction of the church. There are to be no rogue preachers heading out into the world on their own. This is one of those um, narratives we don't need to emulate from the New Testament. Times are different now. Paul was unique. Okay, Paul mentioned that he went to Arabia for a short time. There's not much we can really say about Paul's visit to Arabia other than than it happened. He first continued on to Damascus following his conversion experience, then went away to Arabia. Arabia, if you don't know, is southeast of Jerusalem and takes up the stretch of land um, between the Dead Sea and the north. Um, uh, And what was the name of it? The Gulf of... I looked up how to pronounce this, and I don't remember now. Aqaba or something like that, which is south of the Dead Sea. Um, it is it, This area straddles the border between modern-day Israel and Jordan. And so you know how the shape of Israel is kind of long and skinny, and it's in the, if you're looking at the map, so my right, it's on the bottom right-hand little corner of its border between Israel and Jordan. Uh, Given that the trip to Arabia isn't mentioned in Acts, it does show that Paul was definitely not commissioned to his office by the apostles. Now that helps his argument. He's trying to argue that he was called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, not only did I not go to Jerusalem, I went to Arabia. And I was there for some time, and I was ministering under the direction of the Holy Spirit for three years, then I went to Jerusalem for 15 days. So this is helping his argument. And then mentioning his short visit to Jerusalem, I might be getting ahead of myself here, but it's in the notes, so I'll read it. Um, His short visit, as Matthew Poole points out, shows that he was there for fellowship in Jerusalem and not for instruction. And the fact that the other apostles did not bring concern to Paul about his work shows that there was already substantial agreement between them at the time. This fact isn't here for nothing that Paul went to Arabia. It adds to Paul's argument 
um, that he was isolated from the other apostles at the beginning of his ministry, which supports his argument for the divine origin of the gospel. And now moving on to Paul's stint in Jerusalem. We read that Paul finally does visit the apostles briefly in Jerusalem. It says, after three years. A little warning here for you, in case you come across any skeptics of the veracity of the word of God. If you try to do the math with these three years and the 14 years, and you try to fit that into Paul's life, you might run into some trouble. And so look at how that's worded. It says after three years, and then at the beginning of chapter two, he talks about going back to Jerusalem after 14 years. Those are relative terms. Well, 14 years after what? Was it 14 years after you left Jerusalem for those 15 days? Was it 14 years after you were saved on the road to Damascus? Or was it 14 years after the resurrection of Christ? So all, I read all of those possibilities in the commentators. Um, but it could be used as an aha moment by anybody who's trying to prove that there's contradictions in the scripture. So I wanted to mention that to um, arm you with some defense. Um, yeah, the only other note here I have is that when you start with the presupposition that the scripture is infallible, it will cause you to dig deeper. When you start with the assumption that the scripture is fallible and just the word of man, you find something on the surface that looks like it doesn't uh, make sense or that it contradicts, and you say, aha, see, I told you. People like that won't dig deeper. So the point of Paul detailing these, this is kind of a mundane passage, like I introduced it in the last, in the last uh, message. He's just saying where he went and what he did and what he didn't do. It's very mechanical, very logistic, but he's using it to support his argument for the Galatians. He's trying to win them over. And it's in the word of God, so it's in there for a good reason, because God is all wise. Paul is seeking to demonstrate that although he preaches the same gospel as the other apostles do, he did not receive the gospel from them. He's demonstrating from his life that he was called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ and that he received his gospel instruction directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it supports his thesis that the doctrine or that uh, that the gospel is of divine origin. There is an interesting... I forgot my Bible. I've got one in my pocket, though. Um, if you look back at Galatians 1... I did want to draw a parallel. I did. Uh, I spent a lot of time just reading Galatians over and over. Um, I don't do that enough. And what I did find is that, and probably you have too, when you simply just 
read carefully the Word of God over and over, you start making connections that you may not have otherwise, and things start reminding you of other things that you read. Um, it's really wonderful. I'd encourage you to do that if you haven't done it yourself. But there was one connection that, that I noticed um, that I wanted to draw out here about Paul's calling. And so I'll start reading here in verse 13. Galatians 1.13, once again, Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As I read that over and over, um, eventually, um, it took a while, I can be thick-headed, it eventually reminded me of Ephesians chapter 2. And there's a wonderful gospel truth here that we can draw out of Paul's experience. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, had, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I read Paul's calling experience in Galatians 1, 13 through 16, or whatever it is, um, it was like a working out of what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says to the Ephesians that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. The same spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that was the spirit at work in you. And we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. But God intervened. And we see that in Paul's calling. Paul was ravaging the church. He breathed out hatred for the church. And he was seeking to violently destroy it by any means possible. But God intervened in a miraculous and dramatic way. We must always remember that. We need grace. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to work in the hearts of unbelievers. We need his grace to continue to work in us as we seek to 
live and walk um, faithfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need God to intervene. If you pray for your children that they would know the Lord, you need God to intervene. If you pray for your loved ones that God would save them, you're praying that God would intervene. Um, Dead people don't respond to bright lights or pricks of needles or heat or cold or anything. They remain dead. We need God to intervene. And we see that wonderfully worked out in how Paul was called here. Though he was far, far dead in his sins, God intervened in him. And though we don't, none of us, I think I can safely say that, none of us have as dramatic of a um, conversion experience as Paul did, but we were saved with the same power. We were saved because God intervened. And so thank God for his grace and his mercy that he intervenes and makes dead people alive because that's what we were before without Christ. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. We thank you, Lord, that it is not of works, and we thank you for this uh, wonderful story of Paul's um, conversion that you have given us. Um, should any should any wonder if their sin is so bad that they cannot be saved, they need to just read this story, and we can see the power of Christ to save. We thank you, Lord, that you do save completely from the uttermost to the uttermost to glorification. We thank you that you preserve your people for your church. We thank you that even today you are with us when we are assembled together in your name. We need you, Lord, for your continued grace, and so we ask that you give it to us as we leave this place. We pray that uh, the words that were spoken, though the instrument used, is very weak and incapable. We pray that the Spirit, who is all-powerful, would work in the hearts of those present, uh, and that you would enable us to um, emulate Christ more in our lives and to show um, the love of Christ and propagate the gospel in any way that we can as we live our lives and leave this place. To your glory and to our good, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.